thanks a lot for taking the time uh, to do this podcast, Matt. I know uh, I've been interested in flow state for a while, uh, for a couple of years now, actually, and always wanted to talk to someone who was an expert in this area. So really excited to yeah to chat well, with you. Well, you might want to call someone else. I don't know if I'm an expert, but uh, <laughs> but certainly like you, uh, very interested in it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I do run a few workshops on it and stuff like that, but uh, I don't run any of my own research or anything like that. It's uh-huh. more of a, a, a passion and an interest. And I think uh, learning how to apply, help others apply it, help apply it to clients, uh, whether they're athletes or executives or whatever, and, and kind of trying mm-hmm. to tap into flow a bit more is, uh, is something I'm, I'm very much into. Well, before we get into any of that, can you just give us like a general description of your work, uh, the consultancy services you offer, your background? Sure, sure. So, so my background is in sport and performance psychology. Um, so I was lucky enough to attend the University of Denver and, and did a master's there. Um, and uh, it was really applied program. So we were working with clients, working with primarily athletes at the time um, on building mental skills you know, building mm-hmm. emotional skills, things like confidence and focus and, you know, dealing with performance, anxiety, um, mindfulness, you know, and then the team dynamic stuff. So as I, as I moved home uh, from Denver, I began teaching at Humber College not long after. Uh, so I taught sports psychology there for five years, along with a few other courses, but mostly sports psychology. And, you know, throughout those five years, I, I was also coaching hockey and I was also, I also had clients kind of on the side, uh, maybe two to four clients at a time, typically athletes, typically teenagers, uh, you know, in the 10 to 20 age, age bracket, and typically on, on the elite path. So whether they're, you know, AAA hockey players or junior mm-hmm. hockey players, provincial level, national level athletes, uh, collegiate athletes. So kind of uh, dealing with athletes who are, who, who their sport is a big part of their identity. And they want to pursue it kind of beyond just youth sport. So, uh, so that was really fun and, and, and great. And then in, in 2019, in the spring of 2019, I decided to leave Humber and pursue coaching and consulting full time. So um, still working with athletes, definitely, but decided to branch off and uh, pursue work with more corporate clients. So applying the same principles of high performance and performance ecology, but maybe instead of applying it to soccer, we apply it to sales you know, or, you know, working with financial analysts, working with managers, working with lawyers mm-hmm. uh, on, on all the same things, on confidence, on self-doubt, on performance uh, anxiety, maybe on uh, a lot of mindfulness and, and meditation and things like that. And then on the organizational side of things, I work with leaders and coaches and managers on designing the optimal work environment uh, for their employees. Uh, or, or culture is, is a mm-hmm. word that gets thrown around a lot. So, you know, we talk about things like effective communication and feedback. We talk about things like developing, you know, trusting relationships and empathy and displaying vulnerability um, and, uh, and having a sense of optimism and things like that around our work. So, so on, on an individual level, again, work with um, athletes and executives on building mental skills and, uh, and helping them make sense of their experiences and then on the organizational side of things, helping them kind of take a, um, a zoomed out look on, on how they can improve the process of, of the organization. No, that's, that's perfect because in sports, there's so many life lessons that we can take uh, when it comes to like performance and pressure and, and even, um, you know, 
it, life is almost like playing a game. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of relatable things that we can take from sports and apply it in life. Um, and although this is like a sports science podcast, um, I always try to kind of draw some lessons as many as I can from sports and, and, and uh, you know, put it in like real life context so that everyone can use it, not just athletes or coaches or. For sure. No, I, I, I totally agree. And even, even when the bulk of my applied work was with exclusively with athletes, I would tell them or their parents or their coaches, like if the only place you apply this stuff is on the soccer field or in the pool or on the ice or on the court, um, I'm only doing half my job. You know, Mm -hmm. all of the skills you're learning as a 14 year old elite soccer player, you can hope, you know, the the goal is you you apply to, you know, moving away to school one day, you apply to your, you know, your first job interview, your first job, your first intimate relationship, or, you know, developing kind of more, um, uh, really, you know, uh, meaningful relationships in your life, and com- communicating effectively, uh, taking time for self-care, all those things. Yes, they, they're very important in sports and they manifest themselves in sports quite uh, readily. But as you mentioned, they're, they're just, as, uh, just as important and maybe even more important in, in regular life. So one of, the, one of the areas that you work with your clients on and whether they're athletes or they're in organizational settings is, uh, is flow state. And like I said earlier, this is something that I've been interested in for a couple of years now. Um, the first time I heard about it was Faraz Zahabi. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's no, um, not, yeah. so he's George St. Pierre's coach okay. uh, and been his coach his, his whole career and um, one of the best uh, coaches in MMA. And he brought it up once. I was uh, I was listening to him on a podcast and he brought it up and he mentioned how getting into the flow state allows you to kind of be hyper productive um, allows you to be in a, an optimal zone of focus, uh, where it's not too challenging, it's not too boring, and how that you know yields so many benefits. So, could you describe to us what flow state is? I guess like just like a definition for people who may not be sure. familiar with it. Sure. So, uh, flow state is 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 an altered state of consciousness where we feel at it, we feel our best and we perform at our best. So, uh, you know, confidence is at an all time high. Things seem to come easily. Our focus, as you mentioned, our focus and our ability to, to process information is like vastly amplified. Um, we have no inner critic. We have no self-doubt. We have no self-consciousness almost. Um, so we're not, you know, scared of what might happen. Fear of failure totally dissipates. Uh, usually time is distorted somehow. So whether, you know, two hours goes by in five minutes kind of the, the time flies when you're having fun type of thing uh, that that's very common or on the other hand five minutes might seem like five hours just with the level of detail and the level of uh, intensity that you're experiencing that five minutes it, it might seem longer and right. certainly athletes talk about you know the game happening in slow motion and you're able to read things more more readily more readily sorry um, so uh, that's kind of the, the definition that I go off of is it's just an altered state of consciousness. The, the slang term or slang phrase used a lot is getting in the zone. Right. You know, so we've all had maybe experiences with that, you know, whether it's in sports and music, just socializing with friends, there's, there's any activity we, we can get into, get, get in the zone or get into the flow state. Um, so uh, that's kind of uh, what uh, one phrase that gets thrown around a little bit. Yeah, so b- being in the zone is uh, equivalent of, of uh, flow mm-hmm. state or sometimes uh, when we hear it, like with the runners, I'm not a runner myself, so I wouldn't know. But when when people say 
the experience runners high where like time like the perception of time is different they they feel no like uh exceptional like physical exertion they're just in optimal zone is that the same as flow state but for runners I think so. I think runner's high, uh, you know, happens during and sometimes even after the run where those, uh, you know, we're, we're going to talk about some, some neuro activity that goes on during mm-hmm. or neural activity that goes on during flow. Um, so there are some chemicals being released when we're in that state, some neurochemicals um, that can really help us feel that, that high. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, for runners, it's that runner's high. Um, for musicians, it might be after a, a great jam session. For writers, it might be after a, a great writing session. You you might have that sense of like, even when you're done the activity, you have that sense of, of uh, heightened engagement and maybe heightened pleasure and, and everything. And then, you know, you'll come back down eventually. But uh, no, I think runner's high would, would qualify for sure. So, okay, let's get into some of the, like the neural mechanisms or, you know, the neural underlying uh, mechanisms of flow state. What, what happens in the brain during that state? Sure. So, so a, a few things happen. Um, one is that our, our prefrontal cortex, um, the, the activity in our prefrontal cortex really decreases. So the, our prefrontal cortex is the part of our brain kind of right behind our forehead it's the most evolved part of our brain as humans. Our brains kind of evolved from the back forward. So it, the function of the prefrontal cortex is kind of what separates us from a lot of other animals. You know, it's responsible for self-awareness and self-consciousness. It's responsible for long-term planning and forecasting and judgment and, and rationale and things like that. Um, so when, when that part of our brain, when we, when we are in flow, that the activity in that part of our brain drastically decreases. So that inner critic, that self-evaluation totally disappears. You know, when we're in the zone, we're not thinking, you know, what do other people think of me right now? Mm -hmm. You know, and when we are very self-conscious, maybe in, in front, you know, public speaking in front of a crowd or in a job interview, you know, we're evaluating our previous answer while the interviewer is asking us the next question type of thing. That's the part of our brain that maybe has that negative self-talk or that self-evaluation component. So that shuts down entirely. And the, the, the parts of our brain that are responsible for things like creativity and collaboration and problem solving and information processing are drastically amplified. So we, our brain kind of trades, um, energy that's typically used for that long-term planning or that self-awareness for now information processing um, and pattern recognition and attention to detail. So now any energy we were using for self-consciousness or self-awareness or long-term planning now is, is redirected to the part of our brain responsible for that, that information processing and awareness and, th- you know, external awareness and things like that. So that, that that's really cool. There's also some emerging research uh, that I think is, is really interesting. Um, it, it's, it's, the research was done in, um, in religious settings. So, you know, long-term med- meditation, long-term prayer, kind of a spiritual setting uh, that they found the, our right parietal lobe, uh, which is kind of in the middle of our head on, on the right side, the right parietal lobe, um, the activity in that area of our brain is also drastically decreased. So what the right parietal lobe is, is typically used for is um, understanding where our body is in space. 
So understanding that, you know, where my hand ends and the external world starts. So it kind of prevents us from bonking our head on the ceiling or stubbing our toe. Or if I want to sit on this chair, my right parietal lobe kind of understands like where my body is in relation to the chair. So um, what, what, what this research found was the, the, the activity in that area really drastically decreases. And that's really cool because, you know, we, we might've heard people say, you know, I felt that one with, I felt one with the water or I felt one with the music or I felt one with my teammates. We were all on, on the same page, you know? And they're not just saying that, like according to their brain, that's literally what's going on. They cannot tell the difference anymore between where they end and where the music or the water or the writing or whatever they're doing starts. So it's like that, that total loss of sense of self, uh, which I think is really cool. And maybe that's where, you know, we, in sports, we hear terms like we're on the same page, chemistry, things like that, where the, the, you know, the actual function of our brain, the right parietal lobe, that, that decreases. So I, I think that's really cool. Um, I hope your listeners do too. So that's, uh, those are some things that happen kind of anatomically. And then chemically, a lot of neurochemicals get kind of flooded into our brain during the state. So um, for two, first and foremost are norepinephrine uh, or adrenaline and dopamine. So these are again, at attention sharpening chemicals, they're pleasure chemicals. So, you know, when we have flow and dopamine is released, we want to chase that feeling again. We want to mm. go towards it. Flow can be very addicting. Um, and, you know, pain can be reduced, you know, as you mentioned, you know, maybe you're on a, uh, you're running a marathon and typically you would feel pain now because of that, that adrenaline, um, you know, it's, it's masked, you know, that's one of the functions of adrenaline masking pain. So there, there's different, uh, things going on, uh, neurochemically as well, as well as neuroanatomically. So, because when it comes to the reason I ask is because when it comes to flow, like you mentioned, we hear so many slang terms around it, like you're in the zone, it's an out-of-body experience, um, it's uh, one with the water. There's a lot of those terms and they're great, but when it comes to like scientifically um, deciding like the underpinnings of it, mm -hmm. um, before I started prepping for the show and before I got to know your work, I always thought that they were mostly just things that are expressed verbally, but they're not actually uh, proven anatomically or neurochemically. But it's very interesting to hear that these things actually have a neuro, neuroscientific basis to them as far as how, how they happen. Yeah, there, there's lots of research around, you know, uh, brain scans and MRIs and things when people are in flow and tracking the brain activity when, when the, you know, those people are engaging in those activities is, uh, you know, this stuff has empirical evidence-based backing, you know, um, which uh, I think you know, it's definitely been going on for a decade or two or, or more, you know, but I think we're still, on, I say we, I'm not a researcher, but we, the population are still on the cutting edge of it all, you know, so it's, uh, it's really interesting stuff. So we, we know what flow is now. We know what, what it means to be in the zone from an anatomical neurochemical uh, perspective. How do we get into that state? Like, obviously we've all experienced that. I think, uh, whether it's, when we're playing a sport, whether when we were doing some work, studying for an exam or something, maybe you took you know, some Adderall and you were in the zone for six hours at overnight. Yeah. Uh, not saying that that was me, but you know, maybe it was. Um, how do we get into that state to begin with? What needs to be 
you know, what needs to go right as far as the environment, the task, the person? Sure. So there, there's a few necessary ingredients. <clears throat> the, the, the most important one is finding the right balance between our, our skill level and the challenge. And, and you alluded to that in the intro a little bit. So if, if we're taking on a challenge that far exceeds our skill level, it's going to be frustrating. We're, not, we're going to become dejected. We're going to want to quit. We don't feel a sense of progress. It's not all that fun. On the other hand, if our skill level far exceeds the challenge that we're taking on, it's going to be too easy. It's not going to be challenging. And after a while, same thing. You're going to be disengaged. It's not all that fun. It's not that meaningful. There's no progress. So finding that right balance between things that are just hard enough um, that kind of test your skill level, make you have to pay attention closely, pay attention to maybe mistakes you're making, correct them in the moment. Um, that, that challenge skill balance is, is really the, the most important ingredient. So taking on hard things, taking on things that you struggle with just enough, right? Again, not so difficult that there's no point, but just enough that it's just outside your capabilities. The, the phrase in the research uh, used a lot is um, it's um, these activities are within reach, but out of grasp. So you can just feel around the edges. You can just kind of like just get it, but it takes that, that focused, that effortful focus to, to uh, engage in those activities and get better at them. Another thing would be uh, clarity on a few things. So goal clarity understanding what you're trying to do. It might sound obvious, but um, I think one of the most frustrating things for athletes or executives is a lack of clear expectations. You know, how, how are you supposed to do a good job if you don't know what's expected of you, right? So having clarity around what you're trying to accomplish. And then along with that is um, uh, clear feedback. And that feedback might show itself in, in a few different ways. It might be the activity itself is giving you feedback, whether what you're trying to do is working or not working if you're trying to play uh, an instrument and play a certain song obviously you would hear it and you'd have to stop and oh that note wasn't right I'm going to correct it or what that was played too fast I'm going to try to correct it um, or that feedback might come from uh, a coach or a manager kind of in the moment so that clear and immediate feedback is also a really necessary ingredient um, to feel that sense of progress am I on the right path you know, are things going well or not? Having that feedback is, is really, uh, really important. Uh, and next one is uh, being present and, and being totally engaged in what you're doing and totally absorbed, not worrying about what's happened in the past or getting caught up on past mistakes and not worrying about what might happen in the future. You know, I tell clients all the time, the two biggest distractions we face for the most part are the past and the future. So if we can kind of drive our attention into the present moment, that's going to kind of grease the wheels a little bit to help us get into flow more often. Um, and the last one is recovery. You know, we talked about coming down from a runner's high. We, we can't just chase flow all the time. It can become addictive, but being hydrated, sleeping well, eating well, you know, taking time for self-care, that is you know, a very important aspect of flow and, and the ability to get into flow more often. If, if we're over fatigued or dehydrated or, we're, you know, we're burnt out, uh, the ability to be alert and that hyper awareness of, of uh, information processing and all that stuff just won't come. So recovery is, is also a, a massive part of it. So I'm not like, this is very interesting. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I do 
I do know um, quite a couple of things about like feedback and um, being on the right path. So I, I listened to Andrew Huberman on, on a few podcasts and he mentioned that uh, quite often. Um, and that is like being on the right path and, and getting the feedback that you are actually on your on the right path towards your goal that releases dopamine, um, releases the dopamine pathways in the brain uh, more so than achieving the task itself. Like just knowing that you are on the right path and, and watching yourself make progress towards a goal is more rewarding than achieving the goal itself. And I guess that ties into flow, which I never thought about it until now is, is that that's where dopamine comes in when it comes to flow is like knowing you're on the right path. That that's what releases the dopamine pathway. For sure. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, <clears throat> we all love to cross stuff off our to-do list, you mm-hmm. know, and, and be productive. And that does release flow, or, um, or release dopamine, sorry. But as you mentioned, the progress towards the goal is often much more meaningful and much, even much more like pleasurable mm-hmm. than achieving the goal itself in the end. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the, you know, we've, you know, the journey, not the destination and yeah. progress over it, process and progress over outcome and, and those things. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you let's dissect this a little bit, when, when it comes to like making sure things are right in order for, to, to achieve flow, um, the task has to be just challenging enough to, to, you know, get you challenged, yeah. uh, but not too challenging to where it's too much for you. Also not too easy to where you're bored and disengaged. Um, how could we how could we ensure that like it's it's i guess it doesn't happen that often for people let's say in school or in the workplace because you have to do the duties that are delegated to you sometimes they are way way above your your skill level sometimes they are way below can we do anything to kind of change that and and make the task itself a bit more um you know conducive to flow? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. You, you know, you mentioned maybe the, the tasks being given to you either at school or maybe in a job, maybe they're too easy um, or, or they're too difficult. You know, they're not always of our choosing. So um, adding your own spin to them, maybe trying to complete them in a certain amount of time, maybe trying to complete them in, in a new way or using, you know, innovative methods or something like that could, could be, could be one, but um, you know, it, it's funny, another ingredient of flow that we haven't touched on yet is, is having this intrinsic um, purpose behind it, you know, doing the activity for its own sake, not mm-hmm. doing the, the activity for an external reward or an extra or avoiding an external punishment or something like that. So um, yeah, just identifying, you know, something with, with clients, we just identify risks they can take, identify challenges. What challenges are you going to take on today? Um, whether it's, you know, I, I work with some sales reps, whether it's making more calls, whether it's getting over a certain type of objection, whether it's taking more time for self-care, whether it's listening more and, and using silence more, you know, we can all identify things that we want to work on today. You know, we talk about progress and specificity and stuff like what challenges can you take on today that's, that's going to stretch you, that you care about you know, if, if we don't care about them, then if we don't achieve them, it's like, oh, well, maybe tomorrow, you know, we want to have goals and challenges that are really intrinsically motivated and that are meaningful to us and, you know, write them out, you know, make a amount of calls today or design, you know, maybe you're a graphic designer, design, you know, five new, five new products today uh, or, or finish a presentation, um, 
or maybe something you've been working on, say, hey, uh, call somebody up on, on a phone call or a Zoom and say, hey, uh, can, you, can I have a half an hour? I'm gonna go through this presentation and I'd love your feedback on it. Asking for feedback and, and, and asking, you know, being vulnerable is a challenge that, that people wanna do, you know, that, that's hard to do, mm-hmm. asking for help. So that, that's, uh, that, that might be one thing as well. So can we touch a little bit on goal setting when it comes to flow? You mentioned that as, as part of like the, um, the, the few requirements or um, prerequisites for flow. Um, obviously, goal setting is huge in, uh, for athletes, um, but also for people in the workplace, for students. For, uh, how can we use goal setting to our advantage in order to get in the zone? You know, when we plan ahead uh, of yeah, time. Yeah, I think, or... I, I think the th- whatever your goals are, um, I think making them visible and making them tangible is, is always, uh, beneficial. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you want to make 15 calls a day, like have 15 X's and cross them off, you know, or, or something like that. And, and you can, we talked about the sense of progress. You can feel the progress as you get to the goal. A lot of times people just say, well, you know, I want to maybe make a certain amount of money by this day, or I want to have a job by this day, or, you know, the, the goals are very kind of like finite and outcome-based goals, results-based goals, have process-based goals, have progress-based goals, you know, um, what are the baby steps I can take to get there? And then, you know, color them in, cross them off, rip them off the paper, make them physically tangible and visible to us. And we can sense that we can feel that sense of progress. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we, we want to have a, a good balance outcome goals, process goals, and uh, something I call purpose goals, understanding like, why are these goals important to us can add some meaning to it as well. You know, so a lot of t- times people are able to talk about, you know, what they want to achieve and the process would be how they're going to do it. And then the purpose is why is it important to you? Um, and that can kind of uh, open a door to to some meaningful conversations as well. It's true because a lot of times we have, um, like I said, tasks that we want to complete, whether they're delegated to us or whether we want to do them. And, you know, let's say it's a school project or it's a it's a thesis, um, and your end goal is get this chapter done, for example. Well, it's like how like how can I? That's not a you know, it's an outcome, but what tangible guideline does that give you? Not much. Like you got to break it down into smaller parts that are easily measurable, uh, tangible, and that could get you on the right path towards achieving that that ultimate outcome that you're you're striving for. And I think when we yeah, sorry, I was just gonna jump in and say yeah, yeah. um, The the good thing about process goals or kind of those smaller goals is they they uh, I would recommend that they direct your behavior. You know, Mm -hmm. like making 10 sales by the end of the year doesn't really direct your behavior, but saying, you know, making 50 phone calls a day or running 10 K a day, if I'm training for a marathon, or as you mentioned, you know, writing one chapter a week or something like they should be behavior based. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one way to make sure that we can, you know, there's, there's that clarity we talked about before specificity we've talked, touched on Um, that would be a recommendation as well. Because, yeah, because if we're going to have to agree that in order to get in the zone, the, the, the task can't be too challenging to where it's too frustrating for you, then there's no, 
there's no option but to break it down into smaller tangible steps that you can take because if you just sit there and, and say the goal you know the goal is to make this much money this year is like that's the idea of that is just too frustrating and, and provides no guideline to begin with mm-hmm. in order for you to, to take some steps and get into the zone while, while you're taking sure. those steps. Sure. Yeah. Um, so how can a coach, um, I guess let, let's start with sports and maybe transition into uh, sure. workplaces. How can a coach provide an environment for their athlete that is conducive to flow? So uh, I was thinking about this question over the last few days as you, as you passed them on uh, beforehand. I, I would I was break it down into a few things. In practice, um, what I would recommend, depending on the resources you have and how many coaches are available and spacing and, and all that, but uh, rot- rotation-based drills, right? So instead of having 10, 15, 20 players, you know, um, wait in line, go through the drill a few times, wait in line, go through the drill, wait in line. So you run a drill 10 times or for 10 minutes, they might spend three minutes in the drill and seven minutes waiting in line. That's not a very rich or deep learning experience. So again, depending on your resources, if you can assign one coach to five players and they work on this particular skill or this particular formation or you know whatever the drill is, for eight minutes, 10 minutes, and they'll get rep after rep after rep. It's a much more, it's a much richer, deeper, uh, you know, opportunity for skill acquisition and learning than standing in line with 15 other kids. And the other bonus to that is, you know, if, if the same coach is maybe running the station as the kids rotate, that coach can now give much more individualized feedback you know, we talked about clear feedback and, and immediate feedback that coach can give that to maybe four or five players. It's a lot easier than, um, you know, 15 players, let's say, right. So it's, it's, it's a much more, um, the, 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 the relationship is much smaller. Relationship ratio is much smaller, um, from player to coach. And they're, they're still able to get more reps. They're able to get more feedback. They're able to learn more in those stations than they would in, in other drills. The other thing about practice would be to make it hard. You know, um, a lot of parents and a lot of coaches, they want to design this perfect practice where the passes are accurate, the shots are accurate, everything looks great, no one's making a mistake, it looks like a well-oiled machine. The problem is nobody's learning. Nobody's getting better. Um, so you might think, you know, someone watching that practice might be like, wow, this coach one, runs a great practice look, everyone's doing so well, it's going so perfect, no one's learning. The, the, the problem on the flip side of that is if you do make a practice or run drills that force kids to struggle a little bit, take them out of their comfort zone, um, it, it kind of looks like a train wreck sometimes. You know, kids might be losing the ball, falling over, turning the wrong way. Um, so it doesn't look very good, but done properly, that's where the most learning happens. You know, as we struggle, we learn. Um, so, and, and we need that challenge for, for us to get into flow, flow state as we've talked about. So, um, you know, breaking some drills down to make them a little bit harder, adding rules, you know, you, you can't, you, you have to pass on your left foot or you have to pass on your backhand or you have to, uh, do three passes before you can shoot. Um, so again, that will also drive their attention 
into the now, like they have to pay attention to what's going on and not be distracted about the past or the future. Uh, they have to be engaged in the drill right now to accomplish those rules before they can succeed. So I, I would recommend the, the station-based if it's within your means and within your resources, and then making drills that are hard, making drills that force them to struggle and redefining to them what struggle means. It means we're getting better. It means we're present. It doesn't mean that you're not good or you're not good enough or you don't belong here or something like that. Um, and then on game day, what, what I would recommend <coughs> is um, pro in, in our pregame speech or in our coaching, a lot of coaches actually prime their athletes to be distracted. And what I mean by that is we, we direct their, and I've been guilty of it as a coach myself, um, we direct their attention to the consequences of the outcome rather than the task at hand. So we, we've all heard phrases like do or die, win or go home, uh, now or never, you know, uh, or hey guys, like this team's one point ahead of us. If we win, we'll be ahead of them. If we lose, we're out of the tournament. If we win, we'll qualify for nationals, you know. Um, that has nothing to do with their performance. That has to do with the consequences of the result. And, you know, then I, I think a lot of coaches think that that's motivating, you know, I think it's a lot more distracting than it is motivating. So instead of focusing on, you know, what's my job when I'm the, the weak side winger in, in our defensive zone, as, as in a hockey example, what's my job when I'm a midfielder in soccer and the other team has the ball, you know, um, in terms of maybe communicating with teammates, having your stick on the ice, um, transitioning well, you know, the task-based uh, jobs or the task-based goals that you want your players to follow through on, direct their attention there rather than what might happen when we win or lose. Um, so that, again, instead of directing their attention to the future, we want them to be able to be present and be engaged and flow with the moment. Um, that, would be, uh, that would be something I, I, I would recommend as well. Because we we are such a um, like an outcome focused society in general, mm -hmm. uh, and that's like that's what we go to the first is when we want to achieve something. Is like okay, what's the outcome? Let's do it rather than the process. And you're right. Sometimes obviously you got to have your eye on the target and the ultimate goal, but that in itself can be distracting to the process at hand and how you should go about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's really kind of maybe it's a bit of a paradox, you know, where things we really care about, like we really care about are, you know, winning and maybe on a personal level, getting drafted, getting a scholarship, um, you know, being noticed by scouts or getting opportunities, like impressing our coaches, impressing our, you know, playing well and being a valuable member of the team. Every athlete cares about that stuff very deeply. But in the moment of performance, during the game, on the ice, on the field, on the court, in the pool, whatever it is that you're doing, those things that you care about are irrelevant to your decision-making, you know? So the fact that there's, uh, I might get drafted or there's scouts in the stands, or if I win this race, I'm going to qualify for nationals. That doesn't, that's not relevant for you to make great decisions in the field of play, mm -hmm. you know? So um, yes, we all have outcome goals. We're all motivated by them. That's all fine. But being present focused and, and focusing on the task at hand will 
ironically lead to you achieving those results more so than just focusing on those results all the time. Right. So on the flip side of that, because I said, you know, we're going to start with sports and transition into some real life examples. If we were to draw some lessons from that, how can a, um, how can a leader or a boss or manager facilitate that, you know, environment that's conducive to flow for their staff? Honestly, I think it's, it's really similar where I've, you know, I've had bosses and, and I've been around organizations where there's that, that focus on the consequence of the outcome. If, if you don't make any sales, we're going to have a difficult conversation. You know, if, if you, if you do really well, you'll get a, a bonus mm. or, you know, we're, so um, we're, again, we're constantly talking about results and constantly talking about what might happen if, rather than directing their attention to, you know, whatever their job is, being creative, tapping into their creativity, tapping into collaboration, um, focusing on the client and really understanding their needs, paying attention to them, focusing on body language, even like really specific details. Those are the things that's going to lead to your uh, employee success rather than trying to motivate them with ultimatums, rewards, punishments, threats, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So, Yes, I understand every business needs to make money. And, and, you know, the bottom line is how the world goes around. I, I get that. Um, but how we get there, I think, is, flaw, is, is flawed in, in a lot of organizations. So allowing them to just tap into their strengths, tap into their skills, um, uh, we, you know, instead of focusing on the outcome all the time would be one. And again, s- similar to coaches with the drills and practice, give them hard tasks like challenge, like preface it and say, Hey, this is going to challenge you. I'm here to support you. I'm here to offer resources or insights or, or information or support, but this is going to be difficult for you. And there's, there's a reason for that. We want you to grow. We want you to be out of your comfort zone. You know, we, we support you here, but this is what we expect maybe moving forward. Um, so, you know, give them maybe individual tasks, team tasks, that are slightly out of their capabilities, just enough, right? That, that mm-hmm. challenge skill balance we've, we've talked about a few times. Could, could mindfulness be helpful uh, for getting into the zone, for getting into flow state? Um, you know, is, is there any research on it or from your experience, could that help? I think so. I mean, I, I, I certainly think there are people in the world who have gotten in the zone or experienced flow who have no idea what mindfulness is and have never practiced it. So I don't know if it's a necessary component, so to speak, but I think, again, I was thinking about this with the the questions you you sent over. For those who practice mindfulness, uh, mindfulness is, you know, the ability to be present without judgment. You know, I, I think, getting into flow is all about being present and being engaged in the present moment and information processing and, and that kind of thing. So those who practice mindfulness and who have some experience with it might be more skilled, I guess, in accessing the present moment, whatever, in whatever flow activity they're pursuing. So the ability to be present has probably been improved if you are practicing mindfulness. Uh, additionally, I think the ability to recognize when you're not present has also been improved if you are, if you practice mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So if you are playing soccer or at work or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing and you find yourself being distracted, that self-awareness say, Oh, 
I'm thinking about dinner or a mistake I made last week or what I'm doing this weekend, let's drive it back down to the task at hand and, and be present. That, uh, that recognition, that ability, I think has also been improved. So I think practicing mindfulness would allow you to get into flow more often. Um, but if you've never meditated or practiced mindfulness, I don't think it's a, it's a lost cause by any means. I think um, something you just mentioned that's like so important is from my experience, I, I, I found that what mindfulness has been so helpful with is not so much so the amount of time that I spend being present in the moment. It's, it's actually just like the, the ability or the skill to realize when I'm not mm-hmm. and like being able to kind of gently transition back into the present moment. That has been in itself just as helpful as making me spend more time being present. So sure. I, I can yeah. I can see how, how I can relate to to flow and getting into the zone is realizing like, oh shit, what, what am I thinking about right now? What am I doing? You know, I'm not I'm not being engaged. Let me let me let me get back to the task at hand. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this is a question that's probably related to what we've been talking about because obviously we've been hitting on a lot of things at the same time. But um, it's fine if you maybe repeated what you said earlier, but what are some barriers to getting into in the zone? Like um, we talk about the things that need to go right, but what are the things that prevent us from getting into the zone? Yeah, I think honestly, it's it's just a lack of a lot of the ingredients. So a lack of clarity, a lack of expectations, not knowing what why you're doing what you're doing or not knowing how this is going to work out for you, um, not being able to sense of, uh, feel a sense of progress, you know, um, having that inner critic maybe in your in your ear that negative self doubt or having, you know, we talk about clear and immediate feedback. I guess with the assumption that it's productive and respectful and you know facilitative and, and those things, instructional. Uh, but if you do have maybe a very critical coach or, or a critical parent or a critical boss. Um, that's, you know, replacing your negative self-talk with their own criticisms. I think that would be a good way to kind of pull you out of flow and pull you out of the present moment. Um, so I think it's just kind of a, a lack of those, you know, those ingredients we talked about before. Um, yeah, I, I guess that would be my best, mm-hmm. answer, my best answer. So let's, let's end the, the section on flow because I want to get uh, to talking about something else that you've been working on that's really cool. But this is the last question on flow. Um, what is like a misconception or, um, you know, like a myth about flow or getting into the, the zone that you see as being common out there, but you know is not true? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's less so a misconception that I've, the, in, in my applied work so far, it's, it's not that people have the wrong idea about flow or the wrong ideas about flow. It's more about the fact that they'll say things like, oh my God, I didn't even know this was a thing. You know, I, I get in the zone when I play soccer or when I'm in sales or when I'm, you know, with my kids or, or, or whatever. I didn't know that people studied this. I didn't know that this was actually a, a research uh, field, you know, and that people, you know, that there's understanding how to get into it and barriers and, and ingredients and, and things like that. So it's, it's not so much a misconception per se. It's just like a, it's not something we learn in school. It's not something that's talked about quite a bit. So it's, uh, it's really cool for, for me to, you know, talk about this stuff and it just like, it instantly clicks with people because uh, flow is universal. Any 
person, any culture all around the world uh, can get into flow in, in different ways. So it's, uh, it's more so that than any misconception. I guess the one misconception maybe would be that uh, you can just kind of chase and chase and chase it. And the recovery is not as important. You know, we talk oh, about yeah. the, the, the neuroanatomy and, and being mm-hmm. alert and information processing and things like that. So the, you know, really uh, deep recovery in terms of sleep, in terms of hydration, nutrition, self-care, you know, maybe meditation, even relaxation, that is such a critical aspect that maybe does get forgotten a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. It gets forgotten in almost any uh, like high performance environment, whether it's uh, you know sports or the workplace or something. I feel like rest is something that people always overlook. So it makes sense. Sure. That's also yeah in sure. in flow state. So I mentioned uh, something like a project that you've been working on. Um, that's that that's really cool, and you sent me some stuff on it, and I found it really exciting. So it's it's called athlete cognition, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Can you yeah? Can you describe like what that is and, and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So athlete cognition is 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 an athlete's ability to perceive information uh, in kind of the entire field of play um, and make really effective decisions based on the information presented and kind of based on their own past experiences. And, you know, words like awareness, anticipation, uh, hockey sense, basketball IQ, vision, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, words like that that get thrown around when talking about really elite players uh, it's really their ability to read the environment that is constantly changing in, in a lot of sports, right? Um, and assess what's going on, process the information, and then correctly anticipate what's next. Um, so the analogy I use a lot is like, you know, can I show you the first link in the chain and you know what the fifth one looks like based on your experience, based on, you know, practicing with your team and maybe video and pre-scouts and what you've learned about the sport and things like that. Um, can you correctly anticipate what's going on based on what you're seeing now? Mm-hmm. W- one thing you mentioned in that is, is like the deliberate vision of, of athletes. What does that mean? So deliberate vision is, uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really the ha- having intent and having purpose around like literally what you're looking for. Uh, in the field of play, you know, there's so much information that's available to us and what truly separates, you know, elite player, elite athletes from average, even if skill level or physical skill level is the same, is the ability to, again, access that information, um, look like seek it, look for it literally, and then process it. So, you know, a great example here is in, in the book, The Power of Habit by Robert uh, or Charles Duhigg. It talks about uh, Tony Dungy, the retired NFL coach who's a Super Bowl champion. And I think he's in the Hall of Fame, very successful coach. And he would uh, instruct his linemen or his, his defensive team to look at the angle at which the offensive, the, the opponent's offensive line, the angle of which their feet were, were pointed. And, you know, he would say, you know, if it's angled this way, it's probably going to be a run play. If the angle of the toes is straight ahead it's probably going to be a pass play well i might be mixing that up but but you get the idea and so now the defensive players can deliberately look there with that cue that was given to them by their coach and say oh now i can kind of anticipate what's coming next 
and you, it's kind of cool. Like, I think it's pretty cool. You, you start to respond to things that hasn't, haven't even happened yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool. You know, um, you know, precognition and things like that, where let's say a, a defensive player reads it correctly, comes off the edge and sacks the quarterback. You know, what do the commentators say? They say things like, oh, what a smart player. He was able to read the defense there. He anticipated things correctly. It doesn't really have that much to do with functional intelligence like we think about it. It's this athlete cognition, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to be coached appropriately, look for things deliberately, see them, process them, and then make correct decisions. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so I think in, in sports like volleyball and soccer and tennis, a lot of elite athletes, like they look at the hips. They don't really look at the ball, but they look at the hips of their opponent and that will dictate the trajectory and the target of the ball, right? So it's knowing what to look for and processing the right information is, is truly what separates elite and average athletes. Yeah, picking up cues when it comes to like athletic performance. And it's not just, um, it's not just a matter of, of picking up as many cues. It's not the quantity, it's the quality of cues that are, that you're picking up and how valid are they at predicting the next play that and i think that's when when you hear about like uh i guess the slang term for it when you hear about the great athletes is they read the play well they're one step ahead of the one play ahead of yeah, everyone they else see the play before it happens they see the play before it happens and that's i guess that that would be the the maybe you could call the psychological underpinning of it Absolutely. Um, one thing also as part of the athlete cognition um, you mentioned is mental flexibility. So that kind of sounds like a cool term. What, what does that mean exactly? So mental flexibility is, is all about um, being able to go back and forth between differing instructions quickly and then usually sub- subconsciously, right? So for example, in, in hockey, you know, we might have the puck. Okay, we're on offense. We're entering the zone. What's what's my job when we have the puck, when we're on offense? Oh, we lost the puck. Now we're on defense. What's my job now? Oh, I got to get back to my zone and, and get to my position and, and maybe communicate with my teammates. We're in the defensive zone now. Oh, we got the puck. We're breaking out again now. So things change really quickly, right? So there's these differing sets of instructions that our coaches have given to us probably or that we've learned just by playing the sport over many years and being able to go back and forth quickly um, has to have mental flexibility. And and it's really important in in sports like hockey, volleyball, basketball, lacrosse, rugby, soccer, football, like these large area, very dynamic team sports where the environment's constantly changing. Your job as an athlete, as a teammate changes, it could change 10 times on, on a shift in hockey. You know, so um, being able to understand these instructions and go back and forth quickly is, uh, and again, we start to talk about anticipation and and things. So that to me is is what mental flexibility is all about. And it it also doesn't leave much room for emotion. So I know in, in hockey, I can tell some maybe funny stories where, you know, players will be on offense, maybe basketball and soccer, same thing. They'll be on offense, they'll have tons of energy, They'll have maybe a scoring chance and maybe they'll turn the puck over, turn the ball over and suddenly emo- uh, they slutch their shoulders, their body language changes, uh, what a turnover. Uh, and now they have to kind of get back to their defensive zone. So it kind of removes that emotion and says, okay, we turn the puck over. Like any one set of instructions is not more important than the other. You know, obviously everybody likes scoring goals and being mm-hmm. offensive and things like that. 
but being able to shift really quickly without that emotional connection, I think is important as well. To like seamlessly change mindsets and, and according to the task that's at hand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how, how do you work with uh, with teams and clients on athlete cognition? Like, how, do you put together like programs? Do you work? Is it workshops? How do you work with them on that? Yeah, so it's been workshops so far. Um, and honestly, just opening the conversation, opening the discussion is, is the first step. So, you know, I, I used to ask athletes all the time, you know, what do you need to focus on to play well? And they would typically say work hard and winning, uh, which are really terrible answers. Uh, and I would get those repeatedly. So I thought to myself, okay, if this is, if, if I get bad answers consistently, it's probably a bad question, you know? So now it's more about what, what information do you need to read to make great decisions? Mm-hmm. And then the conversation starts rolling. Oh, well, you know, where the defenseman is, where my partner is, you know, where, what our team structure, what our team strategy is, are we playing passive? Are we playing aggressive? You know, that sort of thing. What time of the game, how much time is left? what the score is, you know, all those sorts of things. And now we can make decisions based on that. So how, just having that discussion is one thing. Uh, and then we, we talk a lot too about the scope of attention. So, you know, novice players or inexperienced players or maybe weaker players have a very narrow scope. Typically their attention is focused on the puck or the ball uh, in whatever sport. And that's, That's what they see, right? That's what they're processing. Expert players are able to widen that scope of attention Mm -hmm. and process the entire field of play. And now they can understand who's open, who's not open, you know, where my partner is, and they can make quicker decisions and then better decisions because they're processing more information. So, uh, so we talk, we just, again, we talk about that. I have some slides with, you know, You know, uh, when I work with kids, I talk about a focus flashlight. Imagine playing hockey or soccer in the dark and the only place you could put your flashlight was on the ball. Could you make good decisions? Well, then they say, no. Well, why not? Well, I can't see what anyone else is going on. Okay, well, that's our focus. We want to open that focus Mm -hmm. flashlight and and shine it on the entire field of play. With older kids and teenagers, I maybe don't use that analogy. but, But I think understanding that scope of attention is really um, is, is another thing that, that we touch on. We talk about pattern recognition, you know, as I've talked about, there are sports that seem to be very dynamic, very free flowing, very chaotic, but there's patterns in every sport, you know? So what patterns happen in, in hockey, let's say, you know, well, breakouts, D zone coverage, uh, two on ones, three on twos, neutral zone regroups, you know, maybe in soccer, same thing. There's certain patterns that, that occur. And again, elite players recognize those patterns more, more quickly and more effectively. Where if I were to watch a football game, I watch the ball. I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. I've never played football, never coached football. I watch the ball. Do I really see everyone's job and recognize the, the pattern of the run play or the pattern of the wide receiver? I don't process that. It's not in my expertise. It's not in my experience. So a football coach or a football player would obviously see a lot more things as they watch a play right so uh, we talk about pattern recognition quite a bit we even we talk about creativity and deception in a lot of sports it's all about time and space right how do we create time and space for ourselves how do we create time and space for our teammates and how do we decrease time and space for the opposition so we talk about 
you know, how do you know how do you create time and space? It's deception. How can you deceive someone, you know, fake left and go right to break it down simply? But how do you use your body? How do you use your eyes? How do you use your head, uh, your hips, your shoulders, your toes, everything to create deception? And we, I, you know, we talk about adding up half seconds. You might get a half second of extra time, not even a, a tenth of a second, but you add those up over the game, it starts to make a big difference, right? So, um, so yeah, it's, it's workshop-based. It's very, uh, again, I'm kind of at the infancy of these programs. So it's very interactive and I'm learning from the athletes as well and, and kind of like iterative all the time and it's very fluid. But yeah, it's pattern recognition, it's scope of attention, it's relevant cues, it's creativity and deception. Mm-hmm. And from your experience, have you, have you noticed that maybe, because you mentioned the first part is kind of just like getting conversations started with teams on, on stuff like that. Um, I've noticed this from my experience, I'm wondering if you have too, is when people look at decision making or hockey IQ, we call it hockey sense or whatever, as like these fixed skills that a player can either have or he doesn't have. And that's it. It can be developed. Have you noticed that too? Yeah, I have. It's I, I, I've heard for ten years of coaching. You know, oh, this this, he's he's a dumb player. He's not a very smart player. Mm -hmm. You know, million dollar legs, ten cent brain. I've heard you know stuff like that. (laughs) And you know, we're I think we're assessing the wrong things. We we might see a mistake or a lack of recognition or or a poor decision, and you know, we chalk it up to this player is not very smart versus what were they perceiving? Where was their vision? Um, you know, how did we teach them what we wanted to teach them? Everybody learns differently. Um, what are we not giving them that they need? You know, so when players, you know, I've heard, oh, he, can, he can't be a point guard. He doesn't see the court well enough. He can't be a, a, a center. He's a, he's a winger. He's, he's up and down, you know, um, and it, it drives me crazy. It's just a fixed mindset. Um, and when coaches put it on players, I think it's doing them a, a terrible disservice that you're, you know, you're, you're literally putting limits on them, which is the opposite of, I think of what a lot of coaches want to do, right. Mm-hmm. We want to build their potential and help them grow to even un, unfathomable levels, really that that's the plan. So when we say things like he's a dumb player or she, she, she can't read the game, you know, this is where I think athlete cognition and scope of attention and cues and things like that can like, honestly, like change the way coaching happens, man. Like Mm -hmm. I I really believe it. Uh, Again, I'm in the infancy of it. I I hope I can help make a difference somewhere, but that's kind of what long-term goal is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it sounds like a great program and something that's really needed um, in sports. And I don't have a lot of experience in, in, other sports when it comes to um you know how coaches view uh, athlete skills stuff like that but i know in hockey i think it does need it for sure and i think that's Absolutely. a great a great place to start so with all the programs that you have going on the athlete cognition flow state the consultancy um where can people find you where can you know any social media website how can people reach you sure so uh um our company is called emergent and the website is workwithemergent.com. My email is matt at workwithemergent.com. And on LinkedIn, it's just emergent. You can find us. We, you know, we like to post some articles and, and some posts here and there. And on Instagram, it's workwithemergent. So it's kind of the, the tagline, I guess. The email, the website, the Instagram, workwithemergent. Um, so reach out to me anytime through any of those 
uh, any of those outlets. And I'm happy to chat. I'm happy to share any um, any resources as I did with you. I'm definitely not one to say, oh, I you know, I came up with this. So it, you know, no, it's like we want to advance the game. We want to help people learn. So I'm happy to share any ideas and have conversations uh, anytime.